This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Episode 65 of the Equalizer podcast. My name is Dan Lawletta. I'm back with you. Chelsea Bush is here as well. I haven't been on for a few weeks. If you miss me, well, I'm happy to be back. And if you didn't miss me, well, I'm happy to be back anyway. It is Sunday night as we record, and we're right smack in the middle of the round of 16 at the 2019 Women's World Cup. We also had a fascinating, I guess would be the right word to call it, weekend in the NWSL. But I think it is important to start with the Women's World Cup, and we had two lopsided games on the weekend, although one of them might have more talking points than any other. That was England over Cameroon. And we had two really, I think, entertaining games that went to extra time. 1-1, Norway put out Australia on penalties, and France survived Brazil 2-1. I think I'd like to start with France. I don't know if it's just because I just finished watching it, at least until my recording cut off with six minutes to go and um, the second extra time, but I feel like, first of all, that's half of the USA-France quarterfinal now for Friday is set. U.S. now has to beat Spain, but I feel like France maybe survived their one game that they needed to get through, and if they can muster a good effort against the U.S., they might actually have a chance at this thing, and I really didn't give them a lot of chance coming into this World Cup. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think that we've, like most of the teams, I don't think we've seen necessarily the best of France yet. I thought that Lissamere had a really quiet game, and they, they need her to to be very active if if they're going to get past not only the U.S., but you said to think after that probably England and then the final. If they're going to have success, she, she needs to be have a little bit better of a game. But I think this was a good game for them to have because I think it required them to kind of dig down and suffer kind of a setback and have to, to come back, you know, to to have a goal that I think was mistakenly disallowed, in my opinion, to have Brazil tie it up, to have to go to extra time. All that is, you know, they, they had to grit it out. And I think that the, the France of the past wouldn't have done that. I think they kind of would have gotten in their heads about it and kind of buckled under the pressure. So I think this is actually ultimately a really good game. And then, you know, Amandine Henri coming in that second uh, – part of, of extra time that's what, what big players do right they come up big in big games and set pieces have kind of been a talking point this uh this world cup and i think that's i mean that's what they did and it was executed really well and you could just see it like the relief and the joy in their faces and i think that that totally took the wind out of brazil's sails and there were times when i thought maybe they weren't closing out the game as well as they should i i think they they could have done a little bit more keep keeping possession of the ball um, rather than trying to score another goal. But 
So maybe that's one more thing to work on if it comes down to trying to close out against the U.S. or England or someone. But, no, I think it was absolutely a, a great game for them to have to dig deep and, and just – it wasn't the prettiest of games at, at always, but just, just find a way to make it happen. Yeah, because like we said, they like, like you said, they haven't really dug deep, and I can't get past the last time we saw them in a World Cup against Germany when they went to extra time and PKs, and they were definitely better than Germany in that game. But every time a key moment came up, they didn't take it or or they allowed Germany to make the right play and they allowed Germany to hang around in that game. And then obviously penalties can go one way or the other, but that was emblematic of France. And look, they're in the quarterfinals. They've done nothing so far. So let's not make it out like they've accomplished anything by getting to the quarterfinals. But I wonder if this might be like their USA Germany game from 20 years ago, where us got to the quarters first knockout game at that time. Chastain puts it in her own goal. It's one nothing Germany. Germany later leads two to one, and the U.S. has to fight their way back to win it three to two. Not that it was all smooth sailing after that, but that was the one game where they really, really faced adversity. So we will see what happens with France. And and I think I mean look, everybody knows France can beat the United States. It's a matter of can they put together a good game plan? Can they execute the game plan well? And I think I told you a couple days ago that I thought Amanine Henri was the most significant player left at the World Cup because I think the U.S., based on that Sweden game, they're vulnerable on the counterattack still. Nobody starts a counterattack better than Amandine Henri. I didn't necessarily think she would be the goal-scoring hero. By the way, the slow motion, did you see the slow-mo replay on Fox? How great was that finish and how great was that replay to show just how great the finish was? Well, it's fantastic, but did you see Megan Klamberg's tweet about it? I did Because not. she had a screenshot of her doing basically the exact same goal against Orlando when she played with the Thorns. Interesting. So it, it was really cool. So, yeah, it was a great finish. I mean, it, it was it, – it, she made it look a lot easier than it was. Definitely. And that's, you know, in the hundred and what, sixth minute, hundred and seventh minute, whatever it was, that's pretty darn difficult to do. Yeah, absolutely. Though it, it, I will say that that as a just a women's soccer fan, it's hard to see Brazil go out like that, knowing that that's probably going to be the last World Cup we see. Marta, we see Formiga, we see Cristiana, a, a lot of their their big names. That's got to be it for them as far as World Cups go. Although I would assume we will hopefully see them in the Olympics next year. And that yeah, they're already that was in. a little sad. So South Africa's got uh, South America's got that great qualifying system. So. Brazil's actually already in the World Cup. And Cristiani, though, came off and wasn't putting any weight on that one leg. So who knows if she would have played again, even had Brazil moved on. I, in a weird way, though, I think Brazil actually did well at this tournament, considering their form coming in and considering that I do think it's fair now to put Marta on the other side of the hill, that her best days are behind her, which is not to say that she can't be outstanding because i was actually pondering during this game like well if brazil wins this game can we get that one great 90 minutes from marta against the u.s and maybe brazil actually has a chance but it is unfortunate to see a career like and let's not end it yet but there's probably not going you know the window's been closed but i think this was the this is where the window kind of locked after it was shut because i don't i I mean i don't think they're going to contend at this point um, yeah. how about Norway, Australia? 
Oh, man. Uh, that game. Okay, so... I didn't even, like, know where to start unpacking that game. I will say that I thought that Norway was the better team for the entire game. I think that they were very composed the entire game. I think they came out with a very good game plan and executed it as they want wanted to. Uh, Australia seemed to be at their best when things were just purely chaotic, which is not necessarily a recipe for long-term success. Um, they, you know, Obviously, they did enough to force it to, to penalties, but... I have to say that I think the better team advanced. And I think that we've, you know, I think we're going to be talking about this Australia loss for a long time. We're going to be unpacking it for a while. Is it, was this always going to happen? Was it affected by the the coaching change and how the coaching change went down? Because, I mean, Australia's never had a great defense. And, um, you know, I wrote a piece for, for the Equalizer last week. It was, Australia's going to go as far as Sam Kerr can take them, but how far is that going to be? Probably not that far. I gave them credit in that um, that I thought they would make it to the quarterfinals, although I have to blame you, that Dan, <laughs> for that a little bit because you, you saw my this, original brackets. This is why. I, go ahead, finish. I had Norway advancing, did I not? This is why I don't like when people ask me for advice <laughs> on these things. You know, I'm an old racetrack guy. I hate the question, who do you like in this race? Because that yeah. can only come back to bite you 95% anyway, but, of the time. Yeah, we can, you know, we can probably talk about, we could probably spend an entire session talking about Kerr. But overall. Well, to your point about that story, though, they went as far as Kerr could take them because Kerr did not have a good game and obviously got the penalties off to a horrendous start. <laughs> Yeah, she did not. I thought part of that was because I thought that, that Norway's center backs, particularly Taurus Daughter, did a very, very good job of marking her out of this game. And Australia was really dependent on service from the wings, and it was not very good. Um, but she had a very, very, very quiet game. And she had that very early, I mean, 30 seconds in, sort of a really gift of, of a look on goal and sent it wide. And I feel like that corner just started out to, to a bad. You know, and you and I talked about, you know, about Kerr before this tournament, how she really hadn't yet kind of taken over a major tournament. I think that if that's what we're we're looking at her in this tournament, you, okay, you you had a, a PK that you was was saved and you caught your rebound. You made a really good run on one of their goals in uh, the Brazil game. She obviously had a role in their third third goal in the Brazil game, although I still think that was the incorrect call. And then you put up four against Jamaica. But when it came down to it, it's kind of nowhere to be found. And I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for that. But, I mean, if you want to talk about people being the best player on the planet, it doesn't necessarily mean the best club player or the best international player or the best set of skills. It kind of combines all of those. I think it's a very fair point. And... You know, I'm hesitant to look at a player in one game, even a couple of games, and say that they're not, quote-unquote, big game players. But I think there's a little evidence here. If you look at what she has done uh, in the games that Australia has been eliminated over the years, even the playoffs last year with the Red Stars, um, I, I think we agree that the 2013 playoff, she was 18 or 19. She was with Carly Lloyd and Abby Wambach. I don't know that you want to judge her as harshly on those. But, yeah, I think, I mean, and she's had some incredible games. I was at Sky Blue Saturday night. Um, bless my soul, please, for that. But 
um, they were behind. And I pulled up, I was looking up when the last, when is the last time they rallied from behind to win? And it was a Boston game where, oh, by the way, Sam Kerr scored. But And the last time they did it at home was when she scored the four goals against Seattle. So she has had these epic games. But, yeah, the biggest game she's played in, um, they haven't been as good as they could be. And kind of like France dug out of this game, Australia maybe could have dug out of that game if Kerr had dug them out of it, and she didn't. Yeah, but, I mean, I, w- I want to make two things clear. Is one that I- just because I don't think she particularly owned this tournament or has owned, a, you know, I, I don't think she had a particularly great Olympics either in 2016, which they were also eliminated on penalties. I'm no way saying she's not a big game player. I don't think she's a big game player yet. She's, I mean, obviously this thing we've talked about Sam Kerr. She's still pretty young. She's, yeah. she's hitting her prime, but I, I, she, you know, repeats this again in another cycle. We can start talking about that. I just don't think she's gotten to that point. Yeah, I, I was actually going to add that she's still pretty young, has time. Yeah, and I also want to say that, I, I, I mean, Australia was always going to get eliminated before they wanted to. It was just a matter of, of time, and this is, their loss is in no way her fault. She just, it was a team effort, and, and she was part of that, that team failure. Right, and honestly, the Italy game probably has them out right now, because if they win the group, then they're playing China in a day or t- in two days. And they probably get through that match and they're in the quarterfinals and they're on the way easier side of the draw at this point. So that Italy match, big fulcrum match for them. Yeah, I mean, they they had every chance to win that match. But it's, I mean, they're going to take a long, deep, hard look at their defense. And I mean, I, I can't even count how many players they had out of the position at, by the end of it. It was It was kind of nuts. Well, it was in your story, I think, that they could have put one player out of position, but instead they did this whole revolving door thing and had everybody out of position rather than just making one fix, which is maybe a depth issue. That's kind of, I mean, it's kind of like Ertz being your backup center back for the U.S., except the U.S. a little deeper and they were playing Thailand. Yeah, but I just, your starters should not be your backups for other starters. That's, that's, to me, that's ridiculous. Especially with 23. And they should, especially, like, I mean, Australia's got enough there. Now, let me ask you this. What if Sam Kerr had played the same game that Caroline Graham Hansen played? Take the penalties out of it, where Kerr missed horribly and Hansen made Mm. it. Because I thought she was, and I didn't see the entire game, but I thought she was easily the best player on the park. Didn't score a goal. And her team got through. What if Kerr played that game? I think, uh, yeah, she, I, Hansen was easily the best player and she didn't score. She wanted to score very badly. And I think there was actually a couple of times she maybe should have tried something else other than taking a shot at a difficult angle that she ultimately ended up, up missing. But and Lily actually, Williams was good in the game too. Yeah, I'll say she, she also. Yeah. She didn't shank every one of her shots. Um, some of them were just really good saves. Yeah, I think I think that'd be different. I don't, I'm not saying that Sam Kerr has to, or any forward has to score. I mean, ultimately, that is kind of the job of a striker. But you need to be putting shots on target. You need to be, like she said in the Brazil game, she didn't score in the Brazil game, but she was heavily involved. Yeah. Absolutely. She made that second goal. She made a run that led to the goal happening. I mean, she, yeah, I... I think that's what Hanson did. She was she was very involved. You're sitting on the score sheet. You see, um, you see that all the time in games where, where players don't have to be on the score sheet to be the best player to to be involved. And I just I don't 
I thought that, that Kerr was getting very, very frustrated by being worked out of the game so heavily. And particularly in the second half and into extra time, she spent too much time, frankly, complaining about not getting the call she thought she should be getting. Yeah, I think that's a great point. We've run long on segment one, so let's uh, step out. But I'm going to follow up on that when we come back. This is episode 65 of the Equalizer podcast. Episode 65, this is segment two, Equalizer podcast with Chelsea Bush. I'm Dan Lawletta with a friendly reminder to please rate and review the Equalizer podcast. The better ratings and reviews we get from you, the more great content that we can send you away. So please rate and review us today. Lots of good stuff around the Equalizer site with this World Cup, including Jeff and Jordan doing their live shots uh, every day from France. So Probably a little bit more exciting than our podcast, but uh, we're going to keep you entertained anyway for the next little bit here. Um, you talked about Kerr complaining about calls, and I'll get back to that in a moment. But the coaching issue for Australia is this, you know, the elephant in the room right now, because even I'm surprised how many people now are supporting Alan Stajic because I find that a, the group of people that I would expect to just be like, oh, well, the coach was doing bad things, get him out, is now like, well, why did they fire the coach? And at the end of the day, when you don't speak up to why you made a decision and the decision doesn't work out, that's a problem. Now, if there was something that happened that was below the surface and you had to get rid of him, all for it, except that we don't know about it. And all that we have is that nobody has spoken out on the record or off and the team is a complete mess. Now, they were going south before they got rid of Stajic, but I, I don't know. Maybe I had enough faith in what he had done with the team that he could get them back on track. And now they've given Milicic the new coach. Already he's contracted through the Olympics, which I thought was an odd thing to do before the World Cup when nothing had been proven. So I don't know if you want to comment on that, or I can get straight into my complaints and we can segue that into VAR talk. <laughs> Yeah, I did. I think it's bizarre, and, and until we know, unless we never know the story, it, it's always going to be one of those really bizarre things, unfortunately. And it might be something real simple where you'll hear, this is what happened, and you'll say, oh, well, of course they fired him. And it might not be. I have a feeling it's not, but you never know. Um, I was thinking the same thing that you were thinking, watching Sam Kerr. You know, she goes down in the box, she throws her hands up in the air. Was it the semifinal last year in Portland when they asked her at halftime, what do you, why are you not ahead? And she said the refs. I, I don't remember which game that was. But, I mean, that's just – I feel like that's an increasing trend in women's soccer. It's something I think they've, they've picked up on from men's soccer, and I don't like it. I don't either, but it's a habit, and I think it can get in your head in games. Yeah, and if you start spending too much time on, oh, we – and coaches are just as bad about it as players. Oh, we were unlucky. Well, if the, if the call had gone – you know, calls are going to go negative for both teams. It, it always evens out in the end. Um, maybe, not in, maybe not in a specific game, but in general, over the course in, of your career. Yeah, in general. That, yeah, that's what I'm saying. If you, you go every game you lose and start blaming it on the officiating, then you, you need to just take ownership sometimes. And right. just quit just wasting time and just play the game. I agree. It's almost like the player goes down and they're like their arms are up in the air as they're falling, waiting for the call. 
And sometimes they think like they're complaining and they've gotten the call. And I'm like, oh, okay, it's fine now. Yeah, which always tells me that they're selling it. Exactly. exactly. Your head swivels to where the referee is as you're going down. You've got too much time. Exactly. And I'm not a huge fan of the simulation yellow card because that's, you know, I mean, then you're asking the referee to get in a player's head and that can be tough. Some of them are really obvious. I don't love the, I would prefer something after the fact, like maybe you get fined after the fact or you can get an accumulation card after the fact or something rather than have the referee have to make that decision on the spot. But speaking of referees making decisions on the spot, uh, I do feel like the storyline right now out of this World Cup is uh, the video assistant referee, VAR, as uh, we've come to know it, and I guess loathe it. I've got a column that should be out um, soon on this topic. Um, I've never been a VAR supporter, so it's hard for me to be... I think I come at it from a different perspective than most, but I know that you're a little bit more of a general supporter of it. So just, I guess, take me through how you feel this, it has been handled at this tournament. Oh, it's a disaster. It's absolutely <laughs> a disaster because I, like I said, I don't mind the use of video assisted, you know, replay or review or whatever. I didn't mind it in the Men's World Cup last summer. I didn't think it was all that big of a, a distraction or a disruption rather of play. And I think that most of the time that they did the right thing with it. But Christina Uncle keeps saying it's not supposed to be, you're not supposed to use it to re-referee the game. It's supposed to fix clear and obvious errors, but that's not how they're utilizing it. No, they're not at all. And she not actually kind of called them out on it in the, on the France goal that got taken back. Yeah, it's every single goal now we hold our breath. So it, can we celebrate? Can, well, obviously we can't celebrate, but that's a whole other issue, celebrating goals. <laughs> um, but no, but like, the, you, you lose the moment. Yeah, and it's 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 just minor stuff. And, and you're talking about going down now to just you know we have it's it's a common phrase that soccer is a, a you know a game of inches. Sometimes you hit the post, sometimes you go in, and things like that. But now it's it's coming down to are you, you know, do you have one toe offside, or was that your shoulder, or was that? as in part of your arm was that your shoulder as in part of your shoulder you know it's just it's getting so i mean so so bogged down and and i mean they are relying on it way 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 too much and, and taking way too long to do it when they do it when it looked like france went ahead initially and you saw the ref make a hand signal and i actually i think i said to you that my initial reaction was like, oh, good, there's an injury because it meant that they weren't going to VAR. And then the injury was a little bit more serious than I thought. I, you know, I never think good there's a player down, but I was like relieved that there was no VAR. And then they took the goal away later anyway. Didn't it seem like the players being down was just enough of an excuse to come up with a ticky-tack reason to call that goal back? Yeah, it seems to me like they're looking – they're not – using it to reaffirm their decisions. They're, they're looking, they're looking for the slightest infraction to overturn it and just to say, no, 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 this is, this is the correct call. Which, by the way, that wasn't the correct call at all. No, it wasn't the correct call. And then when Henri scored, something happened. I don't know what it was where Brazil lost the ball on the restart. And I was worried then that they were going to call, they were going to look at the Henri goal, but it was something yeah. else. And France got like a free, which I don't know if I've ever seen that, but I France no got a free kick happening. right away. 
Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I had no idea what was happening. You but, just I mean, assume that it's something where they're going to look at it. And how many have they looked at where we don't? We haven't even talked about it. Like, there's just a random mundane play in the box, and they're looking to see if it's a PK, and then they blow it dead, and they continue the game. Well, because there's been times where the, the play has continued. We've moved on. They said, oh, wait, that was a PK. Hold up. What? <laughs> right, exactly. Like, I've, I've moved on with life. The players have moved on with life. Like, you're in a whole different world now, and you want to go back and call this a PK. Like, it's just not it's not working well, and I don't, I don't blame Cameroon at all for being upset. I may have an issue with some of the ways they showed that, but I don't blame them at all for being upset. Oh, we'll get to that in, in just a minute. Okay. But how, n- how nuts is it that Nigeria looks like they're going to go out of the World Cup on a play where France gets called for a penalty that wasn't called, Renard hits the post, outside of the post, I might add. The keeper's foot is literally, I don't know, like a blade of grass off the line. Renard gets a retake. And makes it, and it looks like Nigeria is going to be out, and they get rescued by the same exact thing happening in the Argentina Scotland game for Argentina to tie it up. PK not called, uh, called on review, penalty saved. That one was a little more blatant that she was off the line, and then Argentina takes it, ties it, which I think might be the most dramatic group game I've ever seen at the Women's World Cup. No, oh, well, yeah, that, that was heartbreaking. Um, yeah, I mean, again, it all evens out in the end, I suppose, for some teams. I mean, obviously, Scotland doesn't feel that way, but... <laughs> no, they do not. They but do not. <laughs> they have themselves to blame for that. You they don't were... blow blow a lead that, that strong, for sure. No. VAR or not. Um, yeah, I just... And it, how crazy is it that halfway through the World Cup, they made a, a what, a temporary rule change? Right, that's only that's... for the PKs, though. That's not... Yeah, I know, but that's that's insane that, that it was so badly applied that they had to go through in the middle of a tournament and say, hold up, we've got to do something about but this. But isn't, isn't that pretty common? I mean, first of all, two yellow cards, and this is not a specific to the Women's World Cup because they do this in every tournament, but two yellow cards and you're out over for five games is ridiculous. But oh, isn't it bad enough that, hey, we just saved the PK, we're going to let the other team take it again and probably score, and oh, by the way, you're in the book for a yellow card and possibly suspended? I also thought you yeah. could tell that Williams, and who's the Norway, Norway goalkeeper? I, I don't recall how to pronounce her name, and I don't want to sound stupid right, on air. I, so I thought they were both visibly terrified to move at all. During yeah, the PK, I, mean, I don't blame them. You're asking keepers to. Ch- I get that it's it's the letter of the law, but you're asking. I mean, keepers have been jumping since the dawn of time, and I mean, th- sometimes it's it's very blatant, and, and yes, that should be called. But you know, you, you move your foot at half of you know half of it off the line. Like keepers have been doing that since the dawn of time, and it still hasn't changed the the odds in the PK. Like you're asking them to change the entire way they've taught their mind and their body to react in the most important tournament of their lives with no uh, no warning no time to to adjust right no preparation of any sort and they could have put that like what league did they need that rule in place for that starts between june 1st and 7th right because june 1st is when these new rules supposedly went yeah i don't know on the cameroon front i've got one thing to say about it and then you can run with it for a little bit but I, 
Um, it was what two nothing England. Cameroon scored, and that one got called back for offside, which was maybe the worst call of the World Cup. That's saying a lot, but it's, it was one of the worst ones. And then England won three nothing, and I mean England was probably always going to win that game. But the I saw where the Cameroon coach called it a quote unquote miscarriage of justice. And I feel like that's where we get to a point where we're maybe taking this thing a little bit too seriously. I mean, it's a soccer game. And I realize it's an important soccer game, and I'm not shortchanging it. We put the tournament on, and lives and legacies and careers are made and broken on some of these decisions and some of these goals. But miscarriage of justice um, is... I mean, I think we see enough miscarriages of justice every day that we look at society. I don't know. I, I think that's a little extreme for a soccer game. Now, within the context of soccer, some of this stuff is absurd, but I think sometimes we need to tone down how we how we speak about it. Yeah, I think that was just a very convenient and dramatic phrase to use. Um, yeah, it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the game, but you still... You're scoring I mean, a it goal could have. Two, two to one is a big deal, but I still think England would have won. Yeah, England, just like the Norway and Australia team game, I think the better team advanced. Um, I think England still would have would have won. But just to, to say, hey, we scored a, a goal, you know, in that game, that's a big deal. That's a knockout round game. That's a round, round of 16. Not a lot of teams can say that, especially teams that don't expect to, to even to make it for the to knockout round for some of these teams. is, I mean, look at Thailand scoring that one goal it was huge <laughs> yep. for them mm-hmm. this is this that's it's not something you can take lightly I've, i do not blame them at all for being upset it was a terrible call we've seen some terrible weird offside calls and and in the u.s favor in australia's favor um this one was was probably the worst uh, i don't i mean this is a sensitive topic and i'm not you know, equipped to, to talk on all sides about it, but I will say that no matter what, you know, spitting on players or being overly physical out of frustration is never really acceptable. I have no issue with the players getting visibly upset and yelling and then crying because it's, an, it's your emotions are running high. This is what you've worked your entire career for. I think anyone who has the nerve to tell them to, to calm that sort of stuff down are the same people who think that celebrating 13 goals is just too much. <laughs> right. And I think that the, that type of pearl clutching, we have no no time for that whatsoever. Like, seriously. Agreed. Um, I also think that, that some of those things wouldn't be applied to the men's game. And I think it's where we, we have different standards for the men's and the women's games and then how to- we expect them to, to react. Totally agree. But, 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 just because it's in the men's game doesn't necessarily mean it's the better way to do it. Well, yes, just like going back to diving and complaining for calls. We don't, women's soccer does not need to be a carbon copy of men's soccer. Right. But there that was, is one aspect where I think that we can maybe like stop expecting them to be little ladies running around the soccer pitch. There was an incident with, you'll never guess, Hope Solo um, in I'm Portland. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, right. In <laughs> Portland in like 2013 or 14, and somebody posted a picture of people in the stands giving Hope Solo the finger. And I tweeted something to the extent of something along the lines of, I was hoping we could do this Woso thing without this sort of thing. And I got killed for that tweet um, because, you know, com- 
parent, you know, would I ever say that about a men's game? And I probably wouldn't have, but mostly because I think it's so embedded in the men's game that it's not worth discussing, which maybe that's a cop out. But just because it's embedded in the men's game doesn't mean it's good for the women's game. You know what I'm saying? I think we need to start with the fact that, hey, yeah, it's good for the, you know, we need to start with the fact that, you know, this is how the men's game has done and it's been successful, but not everything has got to be copied. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree to that. I just, I think we, we need to be cognizant of how we're talking about them, but I think we're also going to go way down a rabbit hole here with that whole discussion, so. That is very true. Um, now, um, on offside then, if you want to take it back that way, if Carly Lloyd was not offside on that second goal in the Sweden game, then I have no concept of the offside rule whatsoever because the defender that would have specific or could have specifically marked Tobin Heath, who scored the goal, even though FIFA wanted it to be an own goal, drifted over to cover Carly Lloyd, who was offside. So how did she not impact the play? Well, it's the same argument as in the Australia-Brazil game, is it not? Completely. Kerr was offside, but she was affecting the play, even if she didn't touch the ball. Same thing with Carly Lloyd. She was offside. She didn't touch the ball. She was clearly affecting the play. Takes nothing away from what was a spectacular finish from Tobin Heath, helped by an own goal or not. Okay. Um, but she was uh, that that goal should not have stood. So I, no, there's that's such what stood. drives me crazy, is especially when you have the time to roll it back and take a second and think about it and look at it from all these different angles. And you need to be consistent in your calls. And I guess these are different referees, but come that's the on. Thing. I'd be much more okay if they blew that call on the field and didn't see it than going to VAR and watching that specific defender drift toward Carly Lloyd and still say that Carly didn't impact the play, so she's onside. And she was clearly off. Like, that wasn't a toenail thing. Oh, yeah. She was she had a foot offside. But here's my question. In the in the England Cameroon game, I and they never made it clear on the broadcast, at least that, that I heard, was it who was offside that they were calling it on? You mean that was it was she behind like the player that took the pass or the one who was like twenty yards right? 20, but someone was just like camping out in the goal. Right. Mouth. Well, you know what? Maybe they watched Carly Lloyd footage and said, Hey, I can hang out here as long as somebody as long as I don't touch the ball. It, yeah, it doesn't I, make a whole lot of sense. We're, and that's where it really gets to you because, all right, fine, you know, the, you know, it's new rules and, you know, with VAR, you got to react differently. But once you're up in there, I mean, these are referees watching the games. I don't get it. Maybe we're wrong and that is the rule, but I don't see how Carly Lloyd was and, and, and Kerr, like you said, were not offside on those plays. All right, long segment. We'll come back. I think we have a question or two we can get to and maybe we'll talk a little NWSL, Chelsea and Dan on the Equalizer podcast. Third and final segment of the Equalizer podcast, episode 65, and it's time for the sports reference stat of the week. Portland Thorns FC, yeah, we're back to NWSL. Portland Thorns FC were held 0-0 by Utah Royals FC on a Friday night game at Providence Park the first time in a home game at Providence Park, they have been held off the score sheet since May 29th, 2016 by Seattle Rain FC. Another reference to altogether now who was in goal for the rain that night, Chelsea. Come on, Hope Solo. Uh, you didn't give me enough time. Oh, come on. 
So Rain, Hope Solo, we already mentioned her once on the show. Anyway, 32 consecutive games as a as home games for the Thorns. Since then, they scored at least one goal till being held by Utah Royals FC on Friday night. Keep in mind, they did uh, lose 3-0 in Providence Park in the NWSL Championship. Technically not a home game, but that is the sports reference stat of the week. And for more and better women's soccer stats all the time, check them out at fbref.com. That's fbref.com. Good World Cup stuff, good NWSL stuff. And uh, we're happy to have them as partners. So that's the sports reference stat of the week. Um, let's stick with NWSL. We've got one question. It's World Cup related. I think we both agree that it became a drag quicker this time than it did in 2015. And I don't know if that's because there's a bigger drop off. Players are better so that there's a, you know, we're missing them more or if we're just spoiled now because we actually have an existing league. That was still kind of the infant stages of the NWSL, but like most people I know don't want any part of it until the World Cup's over. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is, is I think I mentioned it to you just to you before we started recording, is kind of soccer overload. You can only watch and take true. in so many games. There's a little bit of fatigue going on. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's hard to the quality of, and not just the soccer, the quality of the commentary, the quality of the broadcast, but also the quality of the soccer is, is not the same. And I think, I think that the quality, I think this is one of the, the quality of the Women's World Cup has gotten better. There are probably more contenders and, and more surprising teams. And maybe that just makes the NWSL stand out a little bit more as, as far as the drop-off. But yeah, it's, and also this, frankly, the games haven't been exciting. A lot of draws. Yeah, no, that that is definitely true. Orlando got win number one in the Mark Skinner era and the first win since July of last year. Um, but I don't know how they won that game because Sky Blue was so far and away better than the Pride on the night that I it really boggles my mind that Sky Blue just cannot figure out how to win. You know, I was at that game again. We talked to Denise Reddy and first question was what are your thoughts on the game and she said we got robbed and then i said how you know you got robbed how and she looked at me like i had 10 heads and said the score and it's like all right i get it you were better and you didn't win but that's 33 games now that she's been in charge of the team and they've won one time At some point they've got to actually turn whatever they're doing into results and i just got completely on a sky blue tangent for probably no good reason but uh you know that that's what caught my eye this week and the fact that the Midge Purse, Simone, Charlie um, thing, I don't know if they just had an off night or if they got figured out a little bit, but uh, it might be time to hit the brakes a little bit on that pairing, which was so remarkable for a few weeks when it first got going. I know you didn't see that game, but I don't know. General thoughts on the week, whatever you did catch. Um, well, we, we took to the 80th minute of four games before we had an actual goal. Besides a, a penalty kick or an own goal, I was really prepared to uh, vote for an own goal for goal of the week. Yeah. So hey, good work. Good work by Vigiano on that own exactly. goal. Exactly. My, that's my point. She she did a lot of work to uh, to get that off to Jan Lewandowski. Um, I, to me, what stood out the most were, first of all, Washington and Houston were terrible. <laughs> so they I heard. Were that was the benefit awful. to me being at the Sky Blue game. 
But also how much better the Reign are with Jess Fischlock. And not just because she's scoring goals for them, but I mean, I thought Anamani was one of their best players. And I don't think I've ever said that about her. I just think Fishlock is one of those players you put her on the pitch and, and her her effort and her energy and just the things that she does off the ball make everyone else around her better. And everywhere on the park, too. Offense, defense, midfield, corners, left side, right side, middle, like yeah, anywhere the ball the goes. Yeah. yeah, anywhere the play goes, she could be there doing something positive. Or a yes. team. By the way, on the, on the Vigiano play, um, and I thought so too that it might have been out of bounds and it wasn't. But when I first watched it in the stadium, I thought it might, might have been out of bounds and Cloud Nine started a VAR chant, which I don't even think that's reviewable by VAR, by the way. Wait till that oh. happens and we get to play the VAR no. that allowed to review. And then Gosh. what is the upper going to be? That's like NFL style, right? Like, oh, well, it's unreviewable. And then we'll take a look in the offseason and they add it to the list of plays that can be reviewed. Uh, how about Chicago, yeah, but- though? Three. Sorry, go ahead. I was about to say, Chicago, I was just looking up to see exactly when they've not scored since May 19th. Well, since Kerr win. left. Yeah, her 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 brace. Ever since then, they've been held by Washington, Portland, and now the yeah, rain. And... Right, with a week off and then the league week off in there. Yeah, they, they did have a bye week. I mean, so obviously they're going to be getting back Sam Kerr a little bit sooner than, than they expected. I don't know if. I'm sure we'll start to see some of the players return this week, and particularly those that went out in the group stage. But Mark Skinner said about Kennedy and Van Eggman that he hadn't, I mean, obviously they played right after Australia. He hadn't talked to them or anything, but he said that he'll let them come back in slowly and that, you know, it's up to them. They need to be mentally cleared. And I would assume games will do it the same way. Yeah, I think that's going to vary. Some players, they like to get back into it, and, and some players, prefer to take a little bit of time off um so th- they're going to be getting her back though sooner than like i said they ever would have thought or would have wanted for her sake um so that's going to help that some but yeah they're they're struggling their their defense isn't i mean again they're missing a lot of players but they're in seventh place right now and they, they are only three points away from from fourth but they just don't look very good and i would have thought they were deep enough to to do a little bit more damage during this period. Yeah, I thought they were one of the top, if not the top roster in the entire league during the World Cup, even without Sam Kerr there. So that, yeah. I I love the fact, though, that when we do get the full rosters back, that the top seven teams are just going to be all out for those four spots. The league's never been like this before in terms of how tight it is with so many teams. So I think that'll be fun. Yeah. Sure. And here, here's like an alternate uh, sports reference stat of the week, by the way, fbref.com for um, new and improved women's soccer stats every day. Three new coaches in the league this year, all new to the league. All three got their first win in the league against Denise Reddy, who's in her second season and has one win. Total. That's a brutal stat. That is. That is. And she admits, like, hey, we got to win. But, you know, she, I don't know. That's, anyway, let's get to the questions. Uh, the one question that we have from D.O. Tastic, how do you think Kerr handled being the captain of the Matildas through the World Cup? I actually think, from what we could see, great. I thought she was all class on the field after the really brutal loss 
to Norway. When you consider that's like four years of work up in smoke and that you set the tone by having a bad game and shanking, and that might be generous, shanking the penalty. Thought she was great. Um, I recently spoke to Rory Dames, who told me that he hasn't been surprised by anything she's done as a player because he's seen that already, but he's been surprised at how magnetic she is in the locker room. Can't answer this question without being in the Australia locker room, but from all that it seems like, uh, that's the least of their problems is Sam Kerr being the captain. Yeah, for sure. That, that's not a problem for them. All right, so what else do we want to hit on uh, real quick? You said probably England for uh, the semifinal for France. I'm not so sure about that. Norway is going to be a tough out. Now, they played that game was brutal in terms of, like, the physicality and probably the mental energy. They get one extra day. I'm not so sure that that's a shoe-in game for England, though. I don't, I don't think any game at this point is, is a shoe-in. Um, not even U.S.-Spain? Mm. I don't know. One zero in January took a little bit of Christian Press magic. So that's true. But I think Spain's been a little disappointing. They have been. No, I I think they're going to win that. I I think that I hate it when I'm thinking out loud. (laughs) Put me on the spot there, Dan. Um, I think that England is going to have to kind of bear down and figure out Norway. Uh, but I think this is England's game to lose. They could lose it, but I think it's it's on them. I think that Norway is very organized, very composed. Their defense is very compact. Um, I'm not sure that they have it in them to break down England's defense. Although I think that, that obviously, you know, Caroline Graham Hansen, Alisa Marie Utlin, um, some other players are, are very good, very dynamic. And we saw today that England's defense certainly can be broken down. I mean, they, they went to shambles um, for a brief period at the beginning of the second half. And if, if it were me, I would particularly attack their um, their left side where you have Alex Greenwood and, and Millie Bright rather than Steph Houghton and Lucy Bronze. For sure. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that England is the better team. Yeah, no, they are. They are the better team. But I'm, I, I, I mean, when I watched Norway play France in the group stage, I said this is going to be a tough out. That's exactly the way they played against Australia. Like we might, you might beat us, but we're going to make it as difficult for you as we possibly can. Yeah, and I'll say the same thing about England and I said about France, and I'll include Germany in this. I don't think we've seen the best of any of those teams yet. So as long as they continue to get better every game, Germany, fortunately for them, has what's probably a little bit of an easier road to to the final on their side of the bracket. Um, England, though, I, I think they can get, I think they can be better. Well, I think if you threw out that whole bottom half of the bracket and we'll give the U.S. the win over Spain, if you had U.S., France, England, Norway as the final four, I think most people would be pretty okay with that. Oh, yeah, especially, for you know, sure. Especially with Brazil and Australia already out. Yeah, I think that having England and France and the U.S. on one side of the bracket is a little, a little bit sad, a little bit unfair. But well, makes, any team who gets to that final is certainly going to have to earn it. Well, one of the other things we've seen at this World Cup is the 2014 World Cup is necessary to get to hopefully no more than 32. Because this men's idea that just recently got reversed in the short run to go to 48, I think is crazy. 
But the 2014 World Cup has a lot of problems, and that's one of them because you've got to mix and match your bracket, and it doesn't always work out perfectly. Plus, one thing nobody's talked about, Spain is on six days rest coming into this match. The U.S. is on three days rest. If that game goes like, and I don't expect this to happen, but say Spain wins two to one where the U.S. runs out of gas like in the 110th minute, that's huge. I mean, that would be a huge talking point if that if it ever came to that. Yeah, I think that, that we're going to have to see the U.S. kind of dig deep into their, you know, oso-vaunted fitness and prove it. No, I agree. Yeah, they certainly not... do not have... For, I think they're making up for having such a, a weak group by having an absolutely difficult, very terrible march to the final if, if they get that far. Oh, yeah, and if they win, France will be on an extra day's rest as well, though they'll go to extra time... I think when the whistle blows at 90, the U.S. will have more goals than Spain. We don't have to worry about 110th minute. All right, I feel like we could do this all night, all day, but I think it's time to wrap it up. Any closing thoughts after one of the most, uh, probably the most intense week I can remember in the Women's World Cup ever? Um, Not always good, but intense. Yeah, a lot happened. You know what? I think maybe Germany is better without Marajan. And I say that as someone who's a huge Marajan fan. Uh, so. I've rarely seen her play great for them in a big game. Exactly. So you, you might be right. Might be right. Uh, I'm going to leave and say that the Australia-Norway is one of the most compelling women's World Cup games I've ever seen. Um, I don't know if it compares to Germany-France in 2015. I'm sure there's a few others I'm forgetting along the way, but... I think that's kind of what these tournaments are all about. All right. We are done for this week. 65 episodes now in the books. I'm actually headed over to France, so I probably won't be on again for a few weeks. But uh, Chelsea and someone will carry you through the next couple of weeks as we get through the nitty-gritty of the Women's World Cup. And, yes, the NWSL season is still going. But uh, for Chelsea, this is Dan, and you've been listening to Episode 65 of the Equalizer Podcast.